and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. In this episode of IOM3 Investigates, I'm joined by Sally Beckham, UK Circular Plastics Network Manager and Leader on Polymers, Plastics and Elastomers at the KTN, and Sarah Greenwood, Packaging Consultant and currently also working on a University of Sheffield research project. Today, both of my guests are also fellows of IOM3. Sally has been a polymer researcher, holds patents in medical device developments, and has been in tech transfer for over 15 years. Her current focus is working towards zero plastic waste entering the environment, whilst realising the positive benefits of polymers to mitigating climate change and supporting sustainability. She currently heads up the UK Circular Plastics Network and Smart Sustainable Plastic Packaging Activity at KTN. Sarah trained as a polymer scientist and has over 20 years experience as a packaging professional working across the supply chain, including for packaging manufacturers and retailers. Career highlights have included investigating green packaging materials for one of the big four supermarkets and working on the development of Garçon Wine's multi-award winning flat RPET wine bottle. She is co-leading a proof of concept study into reusable packaging as part of the UKRI funded project Plastics Redefining Single Use at the University of Sheffield. Together, we will be looking at the role plastics play in modern society and whether or not we can really be both plastic free and sustainable. Sarah and Sally, hello. 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 Um, let's start off quickly, Sally. Would you mind uh, briefly explaining your roles at UKCPN and KTN? Yeah, you covered a little bit of it, Colin, there. Thank you. But I work at KTN, and uh, KTN as an organisation is one that connects individuals to accelerate innovation, uh, and that's all towards positive change. So we work with businesses and researchers. It's free of charge service. We use our knowledge and contacts, and we build collaborations to shape the future. Personally, my area of expertise is in polymers, and I'm determined, actually, to see plastics in particular being used better so that zero plastic waste enters the environment. I led on founding the UK CPN, as you said, so that was back in November 2018, uh, and it's to bring together the community so we can value the positives of plastics whilst making them as sustainable as possible. Thank you very much indeed, Sally. Sarah, you work as a a consultant and as a bit of an academic as well. Can you just tell me, tell me a little bit about what you're up to at the moment, please? Well, so at the moment, um, I'm leading a proof of concept study into reusable plastic packaging. Um, so this came out of the UKRI funded project Plastics Redefining Single Use. So there are seven other universities that were given a million pounds to look at issues um, and ways of solving the the plastics problem. Before we get into things, one of my favourite stories about plastics is the the fact that originally it was intended as a nature conservation tool. Um, The demand for ivory for wildly popular billiards led to concerns that elephants would be hunted to extinction. So a competition was launched to to find a substitute. And this was celluloid, the first widely used artificial plastic. Apart from anything else, I think this story wonderfully illustrates the importance of unintended consequences, which I think is something that we'll probably touch on quite a lot as we go through this podcast. But I think perhaps, Sally, we ought to start off with a bit of basics. What do we mean by plastics? What's a good working definition? And where do they come from traditionally? How are they made? That sort of thing. 
Plastics are actually from a larger family of, of polymers, and they're all long macromolecules, uh, and they can be thousands of chains of atoms long, if not hundreds of thousands. And there's actually thousands of types of plastics as well. Um, I always think of the analogy of a ball of string to someone who might not be a polymer chemist. Some, some of those balls of string might be all sort of entangled. Some of them might be all nicely wrapped and aligned. Uh, and some of them might be different colors. And some of them might actually have little pendant fluffy bits hanging off them, applicable if you're a knitter. But <laughs> there's the analogy works for polymers as well. So there's absolutely hundreds and hundreds of these types of materials. But plastics really comes from a Greek word. And it's a, it's, it means that they're malleable. So you can form them and shape them into materials. And they're normally synthetic. Uh, but they can, and that, that means they come from fossil fuels, uh, but they can come from, from plant materials as well, cellulose, for example. Thank you, Sally. That's really helpful. A couple of years ago, uh, CIWM and others commissioned a report looking at the uses of plastics in the context of how we might tackle the environmental issues. And one of the ideas that I found particularly interesting coming out of that was looking at uh, products in terms of the uses and how long a product is actually used and designing it accordingly. So if it was an item that's going to be used for a very brief period of time and then discarded, you'd think very differently about the issues that might face it than, for example, a piece of building infrastructure that might be in service for 20 or 30 years. Is this helpful in thinking about plastics, Sarah? Yes, absolutely. And what I really liked is was this distinction between single use in terms of, say, a bottle of shampoo and extreme single use, so coffee stirrers, cotton buds, that sort of thing, things that will only be actually in use for minutes, if not seconds, and then disposed of. And it's a way of contrasting those to something like um, lino in your kitchen, which could be there for as long as 20 years. And the way we manage those and the way that we dispose of those are very different. Sally, does it, does it work for you or is it something that you find less helpful? I, I probably find it less helpful, actually, to be honest. Um, we've been designing single-use or, or packaging materials to be thinner and lighter for a very, very long time. So we already put design into that because we know it's not to be, not to be used for a long time. So if you were thinking about a piece of guttering, for example, on a house, it's thick and rigid and it's got longevity. You wouldn't, you wouldn't make that from a very thin film that you use for packaging. So design has already been you know, applied to the longevity of, of materials. Um, but at the end of life, they are all persistent polymers. Uh, and I think you know, we should look at even the non-single-use materials with the same end-of-life questions that we're asking about single-use materials. The single-use issue for me is around whether we need it in the first place. Yes, I think that's a, a topic that we'll definitely touch on a, a, a lot more. And I think, actually, Sarah, at the moment, if you talk to the person in the street, they're probably going to, when you start talking about plastics, really think about single-use plastic packaging. That's probably the primary thing they're going to be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Why, why, why do we use plastic for single-use packaging? What's the, the rationale behind it? Why do we get to be where we are? Well, it's, it's a wonderful material, and I think we, we forget about this um, most of the time, or certainly the public does. It's helped us to streamline supply chains. So supply chains are a lot longer than they were 30, 40 years ago, and it helps preserve the product through those supply chains. Along with refrigerated transport, the packaging can preserve the product inside over much, much longer distances. We, we are now able to have 
fresh produce in our supermarkets all year round because of the combination of refrigerated transport and plastic packaging, which we couldn't otherwise have. And I guess also, as, as Sally's already mentioned, we've been looking to try and lightweight packaging for a long time. And of course, plastics is, is one of the best materials for that. A plastic bottle, an empty plastic bottle is much lighter than a, an empty glass bottle, for example, isn't it? It's strong and it's lightweight. And, and that was the whole selling point of plastic bottles, PET bottles, when they, when they first became popular in the 1970s. Um, was because exactly that, they were more lightweight than the, the glass alternative. But Sally, this is not a, a cost-free uh, improvement, is it? There are some downsides to using plastic in packaging. Do you want to say a little bit about them? Yeah, one thing I want to raise first, though, is is cost in terms of another reason that we started using plastic as a material. It's incredibly cheap. And actually, cheap means we have used less carbon to manufacture it. So, you know, if it took a lot of energy to make something and a lot to transport it, what you finally pay for that product would be quite high. And the fact that plastics are cheap actually give you a sort of rough ballpark figure that the greenhouse gas emissions involved from that process to get to that plastic product are quite low. So cheap has led to ubiquitous in many ways, but it's the, it's the properties of polymers that have allowed us to lightweight and manufacture them cheaply. That, that have got to the point that we've got where we can use them in so many applications. It's, it's why PET bottles uh, started replacing glass, for example. But it's not all good news. There are some unintended consequences, as uh, we've already touched on. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's so much of it, and we don't have the infrastructure to process it at end of life. So it ends up in the environment. It ends up inside uh, fish, the fish and whales and seabirds. And that's, I guess where a lot of the current anxiety over plastic packaging has come from. Yeah, I think it is shocking, our husbandry of a really valuable material. Um, I almost feel like we should turn things on our head and say that anything is cheap, has got a good credentials in terms of carbon footprint, and we should value the material for that alone. Um, we can, if we collected it and reprocessed it all, uh, reuse it and if no one had ever littered or ever shipped it to places where the infrastructure wasn't there or we built the infrastructure, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Yes, indeed. One, one topic that gets a lot of attention at the moment in particular, uh, Sarah, is the role of biodegradable and compostable plastics for packaging. And I, I saw a report recently by Amcor uh, looking across uh, consumers in a number of European countries, and they found that over half of consumers said they'd buy a product because it was in what called itself compostable packaging. So first of all, what does compostable or biodegradable mean? Is, is, is there clarity about what that means? And then is this the solution? Okay, so biodegradable doesn't really mean anything. There's no timescales set on it. It just means that eventually microbes will digest it. And I've got some well, I, I've thrown it out now, but I did have some pretty tatty uh, garden furniture that looked like it started to uh, biodegrade in, in some respects. Um, and that's over a period of 10, 15 years. So actually, there, there needs to be a way to quantify this. And that's what the compostability standards do. And what the compostability standards do is measure the ability of a material to degrade within the specific conditions either of an industrial composting system or anaerobic digestion or a home compost heap. And 
they will set time limits on the um, time it takes to degrade and then also the residue left behind and the toxicity of the residue left behind as well. Compostable packaging is part of the solution, but I think it's always going to remain niche. It has some very, very good applications. So, for example, coffee pods, packaging where it is heavily contaminated by food, and also in situations where you can control what's happening to the packaging that you're, you're providing. So um, I spoke at a conference at Forest Green Rovers football stadium a couple of years ago. That was for the Soil Association. And they actually do that. They have compostable packaging on, on their match days. They'll collect everything in. It'll all go into one bin and then they can send that off to the composters. If it's not a closed environment like that, if you're a, a takeaway in a city centre, you don't have that control and you don't know where the packaging is going. So it's most likely to end up in landfill or incineration. And indeed, some of these uh, compostable polymers, if they get into the uh, recycling chain, can mess up recycling, can't they? Absolutely, yes. And I think the ones to, to watch out for in particular are the oxo-degradable plastics, which are standard conventional fossil plastics that have had an additive added to them, which make them break down. The recycling community don't like OXOs. They, they say that it will, it will contaminate their recycler. And, and it's understandable if you're using materials that are going to be used for sheeting, for damp courses, you don't want, to, you don't want those to break down within a, a, a specific time frame. So OXOs are, are pretty much a non-goer now these days. And indeed, I think some parts of Europe are starting to talk about banning them, aren't they? Yeah, there's an EU directive that lists oxo-degradables in the same breath as it lists the single-use packaging items. Just as an anecdote, uh, in our local town, there's a, a fishmonger in the marketplace at uh, the weekend, and I've been having an ongoing argument with him over what plastic bags he should use to put his fish in. He, he says he has to use plastic because wet fish, you can't really put it into paper and people don't bring their own bags or don't want their bags to get smelly. And uh, I've been trying to persuade him for ages to move over to explicitly recycled plastic. And instead, he's using something which, as far as I can tell, is almost certainly oxidegradable. I, I keep on feeling as I should write an official letter to him as CEO of IM3 telling him. You're a brave man, Colin, taking that on. <laughs> so um, we, we've talked a, a, quite a bit about some of the benefits and, and, and risks. But, you know, if we, if we took out plastic packaging from, from our supply chains... Would we be more le or less sustainable? What do you think, Sally? Oh, I think we'd be less sustainable. It feels like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So there's actually data out there. A lot of it's from the states on municipal waste. But if we removed all plastic packaging, and, and, and that's if we could, because liquids and particularly carbonated ones are horrendously difficult to package in anything else but plastic, we'd have to replace them with glass and metal and cardboard and, and they all have higher carbon footprints. So whilst we would have stopped the, you know, pollution and leakage and littering into the environment, we would have added to global warming. So we, we've got to choose our battles, I think. Uh, and it's not that there aren't the ways in which we can deal with plastics at end of life. It's just that we don't have enough of them. That infrastructure needs to be put in place. Sarah, do you want to add anything to that? So, so yeah, there was a report issued 
almost 10 years ago now that, that said exactly that. And okay, it's one report and it, it's specific conditions. But the results were if we moved entirely away from plastic, then the packaging weight would have to go up um, to 3.6 times what it is currently. The energy usage would more than double and the greenhouse gas emissions would also double as well doing that direct switch. So there, there are obvious benefits climate-wise to keeping plastics. And one of the things that we've already talked about is this distinction between single use um, and, and multi-use. Just looking at packaging, Sarah, I know that you, you're doing quite a lot of work in this space at the moment. What are the issues and the arguments involved with this choice between single use and, and, and reuse? That's a lovely question. And I, I've been looking at this for a year. So <laughs> uh, how long have you got, Colin? Okay. Um, this is what, yeah, exactly. This is what I've been looking on for the last year. I've got a, a wonderful team of people around me. Our research question at the University of Sheffield for this part of the project is what is required to make reusable plastic packaging mainstream? And to do that, we've looked at identifying barriers and enablers, not only from a technical perspective, but also from a behavioural perspective as well. And there's some very, very interesting results. So actually, we probably have the technology to do it. We need to, whatever we do, we need to make sure that the life cycle analysis fits the product. You may find that you would have to use something maybe 20 times before you get a benefit over single-use packaging. And also make sure that within that 20 times that that packaging is still acceptable to the consumer. You might find that after 10 uses, they'll go, ooh, I'm not using that and, and reject the product. I know I reject. I'm a packaging technologist and I'll go into the supermarket and pick the, the best, the nicest, the neatest box because the one next to it has been, has been crushed. And you know that the, the product probably won't be damaged inside, depending on the product, but you still want to have the one that looks the best. And that's kind of like a natural instinct. So it's, it's working not only with the, the technology, but also people's behaviour. Sally, you've been involved with the new Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund programme, Smart Sustainable Plastic Packaging. You said that earlier on. Can you tell us a bit about what that's trying to do and, 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 and where that's headed? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, challenge, actually, because it was led and shaped by the community. I've been part of the process from the very beginning um, when Innovate UK decided to do what's called wave three of their industrial strategy challenge fund. And Smart Sustainable Plastic Packaging Challenge is one of, one of the challenges that came out of that. So uh, just briefly, it's a £60 million fund to innovate in the space to make plastic packaging more sustainable. So it's doing it better. It's about collect, better collecting, better sorting, better reprocessing so we get um, higher levels of better quality material. It's about keeping it out of the environment. It's about very much about business models and behavior change. Uh, you know, separate pieces of work have been done by, you know, various entities in the supply chain for their own business needs. But marrying up and looking systemically through the whole system and supply chain is is what will make the most difference now, uh, getting everyone to talk to each other. So we're very much about building collaborations between all the partners and, the, and everyone in the community who has a vested interest uh, and, and has a really good innovative idea to make a change. Sounds like it's a, a really interesting programme. Is there a lot of money coming in behind this? I mentioned the 60 million. That's the government piece. Uh, but there will be match funding or there's expectation of match funding from the businesses that can get involved. 
There are many Innovate UK projects that are 100% funded. It requires either some in-kind or some cash contribution from the companies, but we've had a lot of interest uh, and, and there have been funded projects in the programme already. I know there's going to be an announcement fairly shortly on some of the pilot and demonstrator ones. So look out on the Innovate UK website for that. Um, but there's some really interesting projects that I think will make a difference. They will have impact. That's yeah, really good to hear. So we, we, we've talked about the importance that plastic packaging plays in our modern society and our uh, need for variety of food and, and, and so on and so forth. We've kind of touched on, on recycling. I, I guess my expectation is that your answer to my next question is yes, but is it worth recycling plastics or is it just so dirty and difficult that you just shouldn't bother uh, with um, plastic packaging recycling? I'll give Sarah the floor first and then Sally. Yeah, yeah. well, the evidence is that, that, that you can have significant carbon dioxide savings by recycling. That's based on PET, which is very relatively easy to collect and recycle. Um, and it's a relatively pure supply as well. When you get to films, which are of mixed materials and um, very, very lightweight, so it costs a lot to transport them around the country. For me, the jury's out on that. And I think maybe um, the answer for those that there are there are various answers for those. It would be nice to see them collected for recycling, um, especially polythene film. But with laminates, which are necessary in some cases, there's there aren't many options for those at the moment. So there there are opportunities there for the for the SSPP funding to look at ways to do that. Sally, is recycling worth it? Is 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 mechanical recycling worth worth it? Is chemical recycling worth it? Recycling is absolutely worth it. If we don't recycle, that's why we're in this fine mess, is, is why, what I would say. Um, yeah, I agree with Sarah. Uh, PET is a good example of the fact that it's much less greenhouse gases by recycling. But we've got, you know, HDPE in milk, milk bottles has a high recycle content. There are other uh, examples of that. And let's keep mechanically recycling as long as we can. Uh, but at end of, you know, if you keep doing that and you keep doing that, eventually you'll get the polymer molecular weight to degrade. So back to my balls of wool, little bits of the ends will fall off or, um, you know, there'll be a tear in it. And, and you, need to, you need to mitigate for that. So at some point you'll need to chemically recycle it. And, and that gives you the opportunity to make back the polymer in a really pure and clean form. So some of the issues around recycling of polymer is that we can't get it closed loop back to food grade. I can tell you that one of the things we're really keen on in the Smart Sustainable Plastic Packaging Challenge is getting large volumes of food grade uh, packaging polymers into the supply chain in the UK. And then I've got some pet favourites which follow on from the pyrolysis because actually pyrolysis is, a, is quite energy intensive. You've got to give it a good old kick with some, some energy to break the polymer apart. Uh, microwave pyrolysis is much lower energy. That's why we use microwaves rather than our ovens to cook food quickly with less, less energy requirement. And ultimately, I think enzymes have got a really interesting space here. Things are happening quite quickly. Uh, scale-ups happening. Uh, University of Portsmouth's got the Center for Enzyme Innovation now. Uh, and I know they're working with GSK. It's, it's public knowledge that they're scaling up the, you know, the, the reactors to produce their enzymes. That's really interesting because it's about the lowest energy requirement at all. If nature can degrade our polymers for us in a controlled way, then we'll get back to starting materials again that we can use for new materials, whether they be for packaging or other uses. We've talked quite a lot about plastic packaging and we've talked about single use versus multi-use. 
course, there, there are quite a few plastic items that at least used to be very common, stirrers and straws and cotton buds and so on. Uh, England obviously is looking to ban those from uh, October, delayed from April because of, of COVID-19. Why, why are people worried about these things? And, and is banning these sorts of things the right way forward, Sarah? So this originally came from the European Single-Use Plastics Directive. Now, we're no longer part of the EU, but the, the government have committed to, to keeping to the EU standards. And I think the reason why these were chosen were these were the objects that were found on beaches the most. So cotton buds get flushed. Um, straws uh, are lightweight. They can, they can get transported a lot. So it's all very visible single-use plastics waste. What I would say with that is that although there are arguments against banning certain ones, like straws, for example, plastic straws have a really good use, for example, in care homes and hospitals and and, and people with special needs, they're visible. And by banning them, it, it shows that something is being done relatively easily. So you can replace a plastic stirrer with a wooden stirrer. I would argue that you should replace it with a teaspoon and people should um, carry their own teaspoons around with them. And I think just adding on that, um, I'm not sure where this fits in with the rest of the rest of the discussion, but I think one of the best things that I've seen over the last month or so is Asda taking single use plastic forks out of their salads that they sell in their they sell in their lunchtime fridges. That was a really, really brave step to do. When I was at Asda, we looked at it and it was an absolute no, you cannot do that. So that was about 15 years ago. Um, and they've put a lot of thought into it and, and they've, they've realized that actually we can do this, but we've actually got to manage it properly. We've got to communicate to our customers that this is what we're doing. And that single step encourages people either to keep a fork in their desk at work when we're all allowed back to work or actually even carry one around with them. Loop have launched this week in the, in the UK. Um, that's a big step and it is a trial, but I think in terms of behaviour change, this step from ASDA is probably more significant if it works. Do you think that COVID-19 has changed people's attitude towards single-use plastic. I mean, obviously, plastic gloves, plastic in face masks, the, the whole talk about medical use has somewhat shifted the, the, the dialogue. But then the virus lives for longer on plastic than on cloth, for example, probably. Sally, do you think it's shifted people's perspective of single-use plastic? I would have said yes early on, and 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 now I'm sick. Well, so yeah, I will say yes early on. I think there was a, a more acceptance of having things cleanly and hygienically delivered to you, and and quickly. And you know, for example, you know, if you get a, a supermarket delivery, it, it's hard to get it delivered out outside of a carrier bag now. So, and you used to be able to get it, you know, unbagged in delivery. But, I, you know, when I talk to people and I talk to some of the large retailers and I talk to individuals, there's still that willingness to do the right thing. And, and the right thing is about not using plastic where it's not truly necessary. And where we've tended to use it is, is it for convenience, hugely convenient. And that's almost what's pushed the sort of overuse of it for me. I mean, microwave pouches of rice, you know, <laughs> to me are, you know, the pinnacle of, of the worst thing you can do for a product. There's no harm in buying dry rice and cooking it at home. Um, 
and you wouldn't have needed the package at all. So a plastic package at all. Yeah, I think we could go further with with the single use directive. I know Germany aren't going to put theirs in and, until July of next year now, and they're adding you know a wider list DPS and spoons and plates and things. And I look at things like biros and disposable wipe, razors and wet wipes and think, hold a sec, you know, there's a lot more here that is just totally convenient. That if we behave differently, which is what Sarah was talking about. We wouldn't necessarily need to produce in the first place. Ali, moving on a bit from, from packaging and from short, short-term single use, plastics is used in a whole range of other things, you know, PVC used in construction, guttering, windows, all that kind of stuff. And quite a few of those areas have already tried to address some of these sustainability issues. So do you think there's some lessons that they can share with the plastic packaging world? Yeah, I mean, Vinyl Plus has been going for a long time. That's recycling of PVC. There's a, a it's a voluntary commitment by manufacturers and and a process to recycle, you know, end of life PVC. And they talk about sustainability and the additives they use, the energy use, and and closing the loop so you can take UPVC windows back into UPVC windows. And I think the plastic pact has you know, mirrored that a little bit. You know, it's about those and making sure you collect it and you recycle it and there's, you know, a, a product that you can make from it end of life is, is important. But Innovate UK have funded quite a lot of uh, projects in this area. There's, there's a company called Blue Castle, actually. I um, can't remember exactly where it is. It's about, I'm going to say, about the sort of middle of the country, <laughs> Derbyshire, let's say. Um, and it's uh, recycling PVC banners. Uh, and that, that's using both mechanical and, and a bit of chemical uh, to get some really good material return from it. And Sarah, sort of looking at it from the other side of things, do you think there's some lessons that the packaging world can teach non-packaging plastic users? Yes, absolutely. So what's coming through now, it's not law, I think it should be law, but is design for recycling guidelines. So Recoup have a very good document. There's also a simpler version of that available on the on the RAP website. And it's really basic do's and don'ts for making your packaging more recyclable. So for example, with a with a PET bottle. It's making sure you use the right closure, making sure you use the right material for the, for the label. So with a PET bottle, actually the best label you can use is polypropylene because that separates well in the recycling process. And pick an adhesive for that label that makes it easy to wash the label off during the recycling process. And these are really basic things that, that you can do to, to increase recyclability. So there's no reason why these design for recycling guides can't be applied to consumer goods. I find it frustrating because my latest mobile phone doesn't have a user serviceable battery. Once the battery goes on that, I just have to replace the phone. Whereas in my previous phone, I could have got one off eBay and changed it myself. And so it's, it's not only designed for recycling, but designing things to keep them in use for as long as possible. And, and then when it comes to the actual, when you cannot use it anymore and it comes to recycling, is looking at the material set. So with packaging now, we have ooh, um, something like five different materials that are used for, for packaging. So you've got um, LDPE, HDPE, polypropylene. 
PVC is really, really declining in packaging use. I know it has good applications for building materials, but, but not necessarily for packaging. And then polystyrene. And actually, you'll find that polystyrene and PVC are becoming less and less popular. And we're, we're concentrating on the polythenes and the polypropylenes. That concentrated material set is going to help the recycling process. I hesitate on that sometimes because I think if you decide, right, we're only going to use these materials, it does actually stop innovation and it stops new materials coming in. But we should be constantly look at looking at rationalising the number of polymers we use. Particularly in the same product, I think, because as you said earlier with your bottle example, separating them out is, is often problematic. Yeah, yeah. And, and Sally, we, we, we see plastics all over the place when you think about it. And I think a lot of people don't think about it uh, as much as perhaps they, they ought to. And I was uh, having a discussion with somebody the other day and the, the growing evidence or growing level of concern about plastics from uh, breakware and tireware, for example, and people saying, well, where's the plastic in that? Well, actually, you know, rubber, it's po- okay, it's polymer, not plastic, but you know, it's in, in that kind of space and, 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 and so on. Anything else to add to why we use so much plastic in these things? Is, is it just cost and lightweight? It's so versatile. <laughs> it, it, it is it is part in part cost and the fact that you can lightweight, but it is so versatile. And yeah, I have to say, I think persistent polymers, not plastic, because a tire crumb from tire is just as harmful, in my opinion, if we let it into the environment as, as a bit of plastic film. So if it's a persistent polymer, then I think we have to, you know, make inroads into not getting it into the environment. But plastics are used because they're just so versatile. Lightweight for cars, they've got thermal and electrical insulation properties, they're corrosion resistant, um, they're durable, and they're suitable for use in harsh environments. Some are transparent, you can use them you know, in your glasses or whatever. And actually, I think there was a, there's some data coming out of the other, one of the other PRIF-funded projects that, that Sarah's part of, um, Plastics Research and Innovation Fund, sorry, I should have mentioned what that was called, from Exeter, and they calculated there's over a ton of plastic material in the average household, and we cycle 60, sorry, 70 kilograms per person per year through the house. So a ton of plastic in your house, it's in your carpets. I'm looking around where I'm sitting at the moment. Uh, it could be in coatings and paints on the wall. It's in your computer. It's in your clothes. So there's a lot of persistent polymer in that we use in our everyday life. Sarah, apart from the the sort of fragments in the environment thing that, that Sally was talking about there and that we've talked about a bit in the past. What, what are the other issues, the other negatives of, of these materials, these plastics being used? Things like flammability and or the use of brominated flame retardants and other additives. It's lack of identification. It's the, the classic kind of things that come out of there. That was what I was targeting towards on that one. I think in terms of packaging, I think people are suspicious of leaching from the polymer to the product. Um, We know in the packaging industry that you have to go through very, very strict migration tests to be able to put packaging on the market and demonstrate that you've done that. I don't really know whether the consumer fully understands that or not. There's been Historically, um, there was the problem with phthalates in cling film, and that was what twenty years ago now. It must have been maybe even more, maybe thirty years ago. Yet people still remember it, and so people are still suspicious of food contact and plastics. 
the latest one of these is BPA. And um, people, you you end up. I would say it was greenwash, but it's not even it's not even greenwash, but it's something similar. It's it's BPA is only present in a very few number of polymers. So it's in polycarbonate. It's an ingredient in polycarbonate, and there might be some residual. BPA left behind in in that material, which isn't used much in in food packaging these days. Um, It's also used or has been used in the liners for tin cans, but you'll go and buy a plastic container and it will say BPA free on it. So BPA is being used as almost scaremongering tactics in order to sell product. So yes, there is suspicion over additives or residual chemicals left behind in plastics. And I thought about six months ago that this would be a big thing. Yeah, so it's interesting. We've been talking about legacy additives quite a while. So there are all sorts, you've mentioned most of them, um, persistent organic pollutants, those kind of things, if they are present in waste stream that's been hanging around. Or one of the earlier questions you asked, Colin, was around the lifetime of the polymer. So actually, things that have been used in polymer formulations 20 years ago that have a long life, if we start to recycle them now, when they get to the end of their life, we we might have a legacy additive issue into where they can go in terms of products that we're manufacturing now. So yeah, flame retardants as well is one. But I can see a little bit of work going on around uh, what we do about the legacy additive issue. And and exactly. So there's, there's cadmium yellow, which was probably used in children's toys. So, and, and that's now a, a, a banned substance to put into food packaging. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of complications there. So, looking forward, based on your experience and your knowledge, Sally, what do you think the key innovations are coming forward on non-packaging plastics? We talked a bit about some of the plastics ones, but on non-packaging plastics to address some of the issues we've been talking about and, and the others out there. Oh, wow. Shall I start with the most hot topic? The most hot topic is probably PPE and, and you know, medical applications, things like masks and, and, and gowns, etc. I think there's a real opportunity there for innovation around uh, antiviral properties infused into face masks, for example. That's, that's probably the, the one I'm sort of, you know, most keen to see happen the most quickly. But we've got some really clever things going on. So, you know, we're trying to feed the world. Uh, you can manufacture polymer films that let, let more UVB light through them in polytunnels and, and you get a higher crop yield and nicer tasting uh, tomatoes. Automotive, obviously lightweighting. I particularly like the technology uh, gas-assisted injection molding that allows you to make products which are, you know, for all intents and purposes to, to, to the uh, individual who's looking at them exactly the same, but they're much more lightweight because they've got a foamed sort of internal structure. So that, that allows you to use less polymer in the first place. Uh, and electronics, there's a lot going on in innovation in electronics towards the flexible displays and things. And, and we're all, you know, tied to our gadgets and using them even more than, than before now. So that light weighting of, of our tech is probably something that's going to be another innovation in, in plastics and polymers in the future. And what about what you might call bulk construction materials? Making enough homes for everybody is is an issue and getting materials for for all of that. Is there much going on around construction material innovation, do you think? That's really interesting. So in terms of volume, after plastic packaging, it's the next highest sector to look at. The Association of Sustainable Building Products has just put out a report, actually, I think it was tail end of June, so not very long ago. If you go to the website, you you can have a look at what they're doing. But 
there's a lot of use of end of life polymer that we can't put back into closed loop, uh, potentially going into construction. So Sarah touched on the sort of contaminated film earlier. That's that we pick all the good stuff out of our polymer waste and we're left with the crud. Uh, and there's things you can do with the crud, but and one of them is to sort of downcycle it into structures for uh, decking, for example, or pipes. And there's companies making pipes that I know that are fully 100% recycled content, but they, they're perfectly capable of doing the job they're required to do. Yes, I have some very nice recycled PVC decking, which hopefully will outlast me, let alone uh, anything else. <laughs> and, and Sarah, we've, we've talked a, a, a lot about the sort of things that are going on, and we've mentioned a bit about the activities of, of retailers and, 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 and researchers. Do you think the government's playing a strong hand in uh, helping us address the balance between the negative and the pos- positive impacts of plastic use? Is there more or different that it should be doing? I think they're off to a good start. It's taking a long time. So we have five consultations underway at the moment, which are the consistency of collection for for waste packaging. You've got the deposit return system. You've got extended producer responsibility, which I think if it's done right and if it's done time in a timely fashion, then that's going to have a big effect. We've got the plastics packaging tax, which is going to come through in a couple of years' time. And they're also consulting on bioplastics as well. So it is being considered. Um, now is a really good opportunity to look at those consultations and feed into them. And it's something, Sally, you and I touched on the other day, which is it doesn't quite capture the situations where people switch from one material to another. So we're already seeing that in retail. People are switching from plastic wrappers, which are quite lightweight and and cost efficient, and they're moving to cartons, which will have higher weight, higher carbon dioxide emissions, but it appeals more to the consumers. And and that's kind of where the gap is at the moment, is that the consumer is king, especially in, in a retail environment. And if you could have the best, most environmentally sound packaging for your product in the world, but it's convincing the consumer that it is. The consumers have their own idea of what environmentally friendly is. And if those two don't quite match up, which they don't, research shows, has shown that consumers only really think about how you dispose of the packaging as its environmental constraints, which is one of the reasons I think plastic is so unpopular. Because you can recycle card, you can recycle glass, you can recycle aluminium, even though aluminium has got a much higher embedded energy in it than, say, plastic, people see aluminium as more friendly because you can recycle it. So I think we've got a way to go. And I I think we've got to be very, very careful that policy isn't dictated by the opinion of consumers. It needs to be based on science as well. I think it's really interesting, the um, Environment Bill, uh, which hopefully should be back into Parliament shortly, has in it provisions to do various bits of activity around single-use plastic items, but it doesn't seem to be prepared to extend that to single-use items made of other materials. And, And I think the concern I would have is exactly the one that Sarah, you just set out that that will just encourage people to move from single-use plastic to single-use something else. And frankly, if if you're having a single-use metal teaspoon, that's 
definitely worse than a single-use plastic spoon, <laughs> better than all of that as a multi-use device. So, yes, I think there's a lot in, in, in there. I think I totally agree. I mean, I do think this material substitution and singling out a single material is not the right way to go. We should be doing the right thing based on life cycle analysis. And if we, if we find from that that putting in more infrastructure is what we need to do, then we should do it. So we've talked about the role of industry and academics and consumers and governments. What do either of you think that professional bodies such as IM3 should be doing? It's a role that we should be playing in the plastics debate, the polymer debate. I sit on the Polymer Society board and also on the Rubber Engineering Group Committee. And and it's important for us, uh, you know, as committees within the IOM3 to, to make statements that we are actually going to give some information that's valuable from the scientific and professional community that we represent. I think I think the IOM3 should be contributing to those consultations that Sarah's mentioned. Uh, well, we have done so far and we plan to continue to contribute to those. Sarah? Yeah, just echo what Sally said. So, so like Sally, I sit on the board of the Packaging Society and our members do feel, you can tell there's a level of frustration amongst the packaging industry that our voice isn't being heard. And IOM3 is the perfect way to do that. Thank you both very much indeed. So the question we asked ourselves at the beginning of this podcast was, can we have a sustainable future without plastics? And I think that what we've said is that basically they're so intrinsic to tackling the issues that we face as a society that we really can't do without them. But what we absolutely must do is manage them better throughout their lives. Any closing thoughts from either of you today? Yeah, for me, my closing thought would be there's an added thing to that, and that's thinking about our behaviours and not consuming as much. And I think lockdown has actually shown us that we can change our behaviour. So I'd like us to see you use less single-use products, full stop, whatever the material is. For more information about us, visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.